Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yordana Azban, here with my friend in Chabruta, Ann Gordon. Today, we will be discussing Brachot Daf Lamed Gimel 33. Before we begin our discussion of the Daf today, we just want to welcome many new listeners and co-learners. Uh, since we announced our partnership with uh, Hadron and Michelle Farber, uh, we noticed that there's uh, many new people tuning in and learning along with us. We want to say thank you. Uh, we always welcome comments, feedback, and look forward to having many more days, months, and years of learning along with you. Um, so I want to get started with, uh, I guess, another little episode of Who's Who. And I want to discuss on today's staff, there was a mention of the Anche Knesset Hagdola. Um, specifically talking about how Anche Knesset Hagdola, what exactly they did and what exactly they established. So on Lamed Gimel Aleph, the Gemara reads as follows. Amri lay Rav Shemin bar Abba le Rabbi Yochanan. So Rav Shemin, uh, the son of Abba, said to Rabbi Yochanan, Michtei anche Knesset Hagdola, tiknu lehem li Yisrael, rachodu tfilot, kedushot v'habdalot, nechzi heichan tikun. So what he's discussing is since the 18 blessings of the uh, Amidah were instituted by this group called the anche Knesset Hagdola, just like other brachot, other prayers, other could you show, like, I guess we would just translate as, as Safari does as sanctifications and also the Havdala. So this is in the middle of a discussion about some of the law of Havdala. And what this is basically telling us is that um, Havdala was actually, you know, uh, established by the Anche Knesset Havdala. So I want to go into a little bit about what they actually did and what exactly they established. But just a little bit of a brief pause. Of, of a who's who, of who exactly were the Anche Knesset Hagdola. So the first mention we have of the Anche Knesset Hagdola are actually in the first Mishnah of Perke Avod, Perak Aleph, Mishnah Aleph, um, where it gives, you know, the basically the chronology of how the Mesorah, how the Torah Sheba Alpa was transmitted from generation to generation, right? Mosheki Bel Torah Misina, Masra Li Yoshua, the Yeshua Lizakanim, Lizakanim Lim Nevi'im. So it seems the prophet somehow gave over the oral law to this group called the Anche Knesset Hagdola. And in the second mission of Perkei Elvitz, it says, Shimon HaTzadik, Hayami Sha'arei Knesset Hagdola. Shimon HaTzadik, who was a Kohen Gadol, we'll talk about him at another time when we get to him uh, in the Daf Yomi. He was from the remnant of the Anche Knesset Hagdola. So one of the things that we're not clear about with the Anche Knesset Hagdola, so clearly it spans a lengthy period of time. Most people place it as starting essentially sort of like at the end of prophecy. And there's sort of a question of some of those later prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, maybe even somebody like Mordechai, were they parts of the Anche Knesset Hagdola or did that time period start afterwards? But clearly from that first Mishnah in Perkeyavos where it says, masru hagdola, that the Anche Knesset Hagdola seems to be a time period that's after the time period of the Nevi'im of prophecy. Um, another thing that we're not quite sure about with the Anche Knesset Hagdola is, is that um, there's a Gemara in Megillah on Daf Yud Zion Amud Bet, uh, where it quotes Rabbi Yochanan as saying uh, that there were 120 members of the Anche Knesset Hagdola and there it actually says that some of them were Nevi'im. So that's where we get that there's sort of this cross, you know, uh, time period where sort of the Nevi'im and the Anche Knesset uh, Hagdola actually um, overlapped with each other. Um, and 
when it says that it's 120, again, one of the other questions we have for the Anshay Knesset is, was it in total for the entire time period that it existed, 120 members? Or was it that in each generation, um, it was 120 members? Um, and that's one of the uh, you know, questions that, we, um, that we're not exactly sure about. Um, and uh, it's just not clear exactly uh, what that. So one of the questions about the Anshay Knesset Hagdola is what time period are we talking about? So it seems to span some sort of time period from the end of biblical prophecy, um, which would, you know, be the beginning of the Second Temple, uh, sometime around Ezra Nehemiah, which is like the early 500s BCE. And then as we know, which is about, you know, uh, and again, there's some questions about how to actually date Shimon Atzadik. We won't get into all of that right now. Um, but uh, that may be somewhere between, you know, uh, 310 to 291 BCE or somewhere around 219 to 199 BCE. But the point is, is that Anche Knesset Agdola probably uh, spanned uh, a couple of um, centuries. So besides doing the things that's mentioned in our death, like establishing the Amida, the Shemona Esrei, the 18 Brachot, and also Havdalot and Brachot, um, there's a Gemara in uh, Baba Batra, uh, that discusses, you know, what actually is in the canon of Tanakh. And there it mentions Baba Batra, Daptad Bab Ahmed Aleph. And it mentions that the Anshay Knesset Hagdola are the authors of Yechezkel, Treasar, Daniel, and Megillat Esther. So again, we don't have a specific time period. We don't have a specific author in that Gemara and Baba Batra. Um, but it's clear that somehow they sort of uh, span uh, this time period between the end of prophecy, uh, you know, to um, to at some point during the second. So I'm going to go back to the actual Gemara itself and discuss a couple of elements about Havdalah. Amrle, Batfila, Kabu, Batfila, Heshir, Kabu, Al Hakos, Hanu, Chazur, Kabu, Batfila, Vehemamru, Hamatu, Batfila, Sarishi, Avdil, Al Hakos. So Rabbi Yochanan here is beginning to explain some of how Havdalah actually developed. And it definitely seems from this Gemara over a course of many years. At the beginning, it was established during Tefillah, meaning it was, it was put in as one of the brachot, as we say today, right, as one of the brachot of the Shemona Esrei. When Jews became Hashira, right, they were somehow they became wealthy. When the people were wealthy, they established that Havdalah also had to be said over wine. Now, this makes sense because probably there was some sort of parallel, and the Gemara discusses that a little bit later, Right, that over the same way that uh, Kiddush is said over wine, so it would make sense that Abdullah would also be said over wine. Hanu, the people became poor. Chazru, Kabu, They went back and then said that no, we just you just have to say Abdullah uh, during um, during the Shmona Esrei itself. Um, right, and they say right that somebody who says Abdullah in uh, the Shmona Esrei, okay. Um, he also should try to say Havdalah over wine as well, right? So in other words, there seems to be at the end, because there was sort of this back and forth that initially was just during the davening, then when there was a period of time where it seems people could afford to make it over wine, they did wine. Then they went back to doing it too during, just during the Shemona Esri again. So the conclusion is, is that really what should happen is that people should, um, that they should do it both. And then they bring, you know, uh, a statement of Rabbi Chia Bar Abba, again, quoting Rabbi Yochanan, 
um, who says exactly the same thing, that there sort of was this back and forth um, and that, uh, you know, uh, between doing it through the tefillah or doing it um, over wine. And I thought this was very interesting because to me it shows that sort of when they had to be to start establishing Anshay Knesset Agdola, new practice, there sort of was a taking in of what was going on around them and sort of figuring out what was the best way to have that practice established. So initially doing it as part of tefillah, that it would just be a little section in the Shemona Esrei, but then recognizing later on when it seems to be that the people could actually afford to do it, that somehow it was more appropriate to incorporate an element of wine with it. But then when they saw that people went back to being poor, they said, you know what, maybe that's not going to work. We need to go back to being just uh, true tefillah. And then eventually we say at the end, no, it's going to have to be both together. And this just showed to me sort of, you know, a certain sensitivity that when we establish new things, um, that the way we do it the first time may not be the way that it eventually ends up. I think this is definitely a proof that the period of Anshay Knesset Hagdola definitely lasted many, many years and, you know, and many centuries, because we do see that there's a back and forth of what the halakha ends up being. Um, but just paying attention to, you know, not just saying like, oh, this is what we're going to do and this is what we're going to institute, but that the Anshay Knesset Hagdola really looked at what was going around around them, recognizing that there were times where things were better or worse for the Jewish people and having whatever new tradition, new halakha they wanted to establish reflect that in actual practice. So I find I find this, uh, you know, application of halakha, right? Meaning, oh, well, of course, Havdal will be part of davening. Oh, maybe we maybe it's better to do it on wine. No, better to do it in davening. No, better to do it on wine. I think that that flux is very interesting. And of course, nowadays we do both. Um, I want to say one thing just about this. It's been a very long time since I read whatever article it is that I read a long time ago. Um, and I want to say something about the Gemara and the potential for, um, there's a lot of academic scholarship on some of the things that we're talking about within the Gemara, including things like what are the details of the Antichnesa And I would say that our practice um, in talking Talmud is to use the Gemara on its own terms. If we happen to have a tidbit that comes from academic Talmud, I'm sure we'll be happy to include it. In you know, I have heard, and again, I think that the jury is out and it's not for us to decide, that really Antikinesagola was a, a very brief event as opposed to this, you know, long-term institution. And I don't have any means to evaluate that at this time, nor are we going to try. Um, I think that the Gemara presents Antikinesagola as a long-running institution. And if there is other evidence that points to something else, okay, that's fine. We're going to work within the parameters of what the Gemara itself presents for, you know, without getting involved in the any academic discussion, unless we happen to. But as a principle, I think we're working within the parameters of the Gemara's own terms for itself. I think that happens, uh, and that's, I get to segue very nicely from that into what I wanted to mention at the beginning of this daf, Lama Gimel, we end up with a discussion of wildlife, which I find fascinating for many, many reasons, among others, the fact that I don't usually think about wildlife, nor do I necessarily want to. But this is specifically speaking about the, the time that a person comes to Davin and what different distractions might get in the way of, of at a time of prayer. 
What if it happens if a if a serpent, if a snake wraps himself around a person's heel? Don't interrupt your davening. I like that idea, right? Like there's a snake around your heel and you're not going to stop, which I think is a tremendous power of Kavana. I'm not sure who is who this is geared for, right? But again, within the confines of the Gemara talking within its own self, so Rav Shesha comes and says, well, one second. It's one thing if it's a snake. If a snake is wrapped around your heel, like, yeah, continue diving, no problem. But if it's a scorpion, if you have a scorpion on your foot, then stop, because a scorpion is going to sting you anyway, even if you don't bother it. And, and I'm thinking about, like, you know, yellow jackets and different bees that would bother us in the playground when I was a little kid. And thinking about, you know, your, the, the recommendation will always just stand stock still and the bee will go away. It's as if it won't notice you, right? But if you kind of wave it around, if you wave it away, I mean, then you're at greater risk of being stung. So here the idea is like part of the snake won't be disturbed by the fact that you have stopped because of the snake that may have stopped you, right? Because the snake, according to this position, the snake is not going to interfere with you if you don't interfere with it. But if you've got a scorpion, well, scorpions are known just apparently to be nasty stingers no matter what you do. So stop and get yourself away from it or get it away from you so that you don't end up stung. Scorpions being apparently particularly dangerous. Now, the Gemara goes on, and we have more other examples of, as I say, wildlife. Well, what happens if you end up in a den of lions? And again, at this time of Tzilah. So it's not really talking about davening times. I take that back. I apologize. The idea is how much of a guarantee do you have with regard to the person who has ended up in the lion's den of what has happened to them? If a person ends up in a lion's den, can you assume that they have been harmed? Or is it like the snake, where you have no guarantee that it's been that the person's been harmed, like a scorpion, where but for sure, for sure you'll get stung, or a lion, or or like a snake, where not so much. And the Gemara says, "And me, Don't um, assume that a person has died simply because they were seen entering a lion's den, right? But if you saw that a person ended up in a pit that had snakes and scorpions, well, then you can trust that the person is now dead and move on. Now, there, I'm sure we can talk about the practical implication, let's say, for somebody who's uh, married and the husband is seen in this pit of scorpions or entering in the lion's den. And we have uh, an interesting um, you know, case law for an aguna to prevent an aguna, uh, at least for the scorpions. The idea, of course, being, I mean, we know, right, the idea of entering in, uh, a lion's den does not necessarily end up, um, you don't necessarily end up at promise. Like it's a very quiet allusion to biblical narrative just through the this discussion while we're talking about wildlife. Let's, let's, go, let's get it in there. Let's get in some, some examples that we know that um, defy the rule. So the Gemara then goes on. Shani hatam agav mazke. The Gemara says, no, well, listen, we don't have to worry about this distinction between the lions and the scorpions, really. What happens if you fall into a pit of snakes? That's very different. You know, once you fall on top of them and they start biting you, that's different than a snake that it's of its own accord comes and wraps itself around your heel. Again, I'm marveling at the idea that somebody is going to, I, I understand the idea of freezing, right? But the idea that you're not going to, 
um, be interrupted in your tefillah in any way is a level of kavana that I think most people who are not accustomed to having snakes wrap around themselves um, are not necessarily able to muster. I think there are other interruptions that people do get used to handling. I just think that if you're not accustomed to a snake around your heel, it might startle you. It would startle me. Amar of Yitzchak, Reul Shvarim, Posek. The Gemara then goes on to say, well, what happens if you see oxen coming towards you? Now, again, if you're in your throes of tefillah, maybe you're not going to see them. But if you see them, interrupt yourself. Meaning if a, if a I don't know what the right group term is, of a flock, not a flock. Uh, your Dana, do you know the term? A gaggle of no, I know. It's I don't know. Game. I don't know what the oxen are called. <laughs> a pair of oxen. I mean, again, a pair is what you usually think of, but those are going to be domesticated, right? Here, you've got oxen coming at you. Stop. If you have a short time, now this is also again allusions to other stories within or other areas of halacha within shas. If you have a short time, a short time is an animal that has not gored three times in a row. An ox that has not gored three times in a row. So I think it's called a herd or a drove. I just Googled. Oh, That's that works. <laughs> okay, if you have a herd of oxen or a drove of oxen coming at, you get out of the way. But the idea is here, the Gemara is more specific than that. Is distance yourself from a short time. A short time means, again, an ox that has not gored three times in a row but that doesn't mean it hasn't gored even once, right? So now you've got a situation of get yourself away from there, a distance of chamishimama. Mishur Mu'ad, Mishur Mu'ad, again, is a, an ox that is designated a goring ox, meaning you can trust that this one is going to gore. And really, the halacha is that a goring ox is put to death. But until you get to that point, kemlo enav, then really you want to make sure it's not just 50 ama. You want to be out of eyes. You want the goring ox to be far from you because this ox has a a history, and a, you can trust that it's going to come after you, kind of like the scorpions. So the Gemara goes on, and it, again, it talks, then it talks about snakes, and we're going to come to this in one moment, but before we get to the snakes, I want to just address this fact of there's like a, there's a, an awareness that says, okay, some wildlife is going to be problematic no matter what you do, let's say scorpions. Some wildlife is only going to be problematic if you agitate it, like the snake that could be wrapped around your heel. Some wildlife, it depends on what the circumstances are. You end up in a lion's den, you may or may not be mincemeat. You have to check. It's not a given. But if you end up bothering snakes and scorpions, well, those are just, you know, the kind of uh, uh, wildlife that will come after you and you will end up dead in there. And now we come to our oxen. Now, really, domesticated oxen should not be a problem unless one of them turns uh, I don't know if it has to be rabid, but turns into a goring ox, right? The the line about, oh, the Gemara is always talking about these goring oxen. Oxen don't gore. Oxen trample on things. Oxen eat whatever's in front of them, maybe, depending on where they are. But they don't gore unless they are, I don't know, agitated, right? So this puts the ox in the in the category of the snake around your heel, which may might really be fine unless it's not. The Gemara goes on. Tana Rabbanan, Somebody's in a place, and again, he's going to be davening, and there's an arvad. Now, arvad seems to be a kind of snake. Um, and it says there's there's a the arvad comes and is harming people. 
They tell Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, we're going to talk about who this is in one moment. Show me his hole. They show him his hole. He steps on the he steps with his heel on the hole of the snake. And the Arvad comes out and bites him and dies. So now maybe stay clear of Rabbi Hanina Bendosa because he might prove poisonous to the snake. Rabbi Hanina Bendosa is our miracle worker, and he has he has this reputation. There's a time when he talks about he he lights um he lights candles on vinegar instead of lighting candles on oil, right? And the idea is well, the same Hashem who makes oil burn can make vinegar burn. He has this kind of faith, and lo and behold, a miracle happens. He's also one of our Sarah and he's the one who Nebuch, the story is very painful. I mean, they're all very painful, but it's particularly memorable, I guess. He's the one, <coughs> excuse me, where um, they wrap him in a Sefer Torah and they burn him and the and then the there's mercy upon his soul. They, they um, quicken the flame so that he will die faster. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible story. But the idea is that here is a person who has such tremendous faith that he can also just show up and take care of the snake and it's not even an issue. One, um, one other thing I want to point out about him is he, he's also interesting, Rabbi Hanina Bendosa. There's not really, a, there's no halachot, from my understanding, actually quoted by him. It's really, there's a lot of stories about like his conduct. This would be an example of like kind of a typical Rabbi Hanina Bendosa story. Like it's an okay, that, who he is as a person as opposed to halacha. Right, and it's going to fit right in because he. We have just this one little last piece, which which is what I've been striving to get to. But the Gemara, you know, sets it up for us very beautifully. So now he's got a dead arvad, Rabbi Chanina Bendosa, and he takes it, he puts it over his shoulders, you know, like a trophy, as he goes into the Beit Midrash. Rabbi Hanina Bendosa uses this snake that he has just killed to tell everybody, his kahal, the, you know, the students or whoever's gathered there, look, it's not an arvad. It's not a snake that will kill. Rather, it's chit that will kill. It's transgress- transgression, sin, is what kills a person. Meaning, if you are free of chit, then the arvad has nothing on you. The implication, of course, being that he is this person because he has just triumphed over the snake. And I think that, again, we come back to this powerful statement, <coughs> excuse me, of faith on the part of Rabbi Hanina Bendosa, where he knows, he knows that God runs the world, and he knows that the snake's not, not going to bother him, the same way that he knows that he can light candles on vinegar, even though that's not going to work for the rest of us, right? And the rest of us might need to rely on animal life, wildlife, let's say, to function as we expect them to function. We expect snakes and scorpions and lions to function in a certain way. And Rabbi Hanina Bendosa kind of turns it on its head because he's got a different uh, calculus in how he's functioning because he's just got a, a profound level of faith that takes him beyond our our nature, our expectations of what nature is going to do for us. Yeah, it's a lovely little story about Rabbi Hanina Bendosa. I just want to point out there's actually a parallel story in the Gemara in the Yerushalmi. Um, also in Brachot. Um, and in that story, it's that he's actually, he's bit and he doesn't even notice it while he's, um, 
while he's in the middle of davening the Amida. So I'm sure we'll, we'll visit more stories about Rabbi Hanina Mendoza, but you know, I, I, I like what you got at there, that sort of the purpose of that little tidbit about him is to sort of say like, here we just went through sort of this whole discussion about what's our relationship with the natural world and animals. And it's clear that some of these things were more practical um, you know, in the times of the, of the Talmud. Um, and then, you know, we sort of have someone who's coming and saying like, yes, but you, under certain circumstances, the natural world, right, if you're free of hate, uh, it will not actually, um, it won't actually um, impact you. So, and I the just, Gemara, the Gemara comes and closes this, this whole section, you know, the next section is, the next thing that happens is a new Mishnah, but the Gemara um, demonstrates, shall we say it, sense of humor, which will come up again and again as we go through, as we continue through Shas, but we haven't addressed this much, uh, uh, you know, thus far. But here it says, Bo'otasha amru. At that time, the sages said, Oi lo adam shepagabo arvad. You know, woe unto a person who has been attacked by an arvad. Vo'oi lo arvad shepagabo Rebbe Hanina Bendosa. And woe unto the arvad who was attacked by Rebbe Hanina Bendosa. Meaning... We know that that's not how it's supposed to work, but yes, yes, it did. And there's just such a such a pride in that moment of his. And I just that's our dot for the day. Until tomorrow's dot, you can find us on all major podcasts. Again, as I said before, uh, we love uh, hearing feedback from our listeners and learners, uh, and we can't wait to learn with you tomorrow.